because I've been having a real challenging time figuring out Dharma talk subjects lately, the last couple of retreats that I've taught. And, um, you know, I, I start on something, then I scratch it, and I start all over again. And, and I'm realizing that what's, in, what's happening is that it's getting more and more important for me to talk about what's really important to me. And, you know, there's so little time to talk about anything else, really, in my book. So, um, so that's what this is about, is what's important to me. And, um, and I hope that, um, that you can resonate with what I'm going to talk about. So I'm, I'm going over a lot of different parts of the Dharma, and um, a little bit of a journey, okay? So um, what I want to talk about has something to do with connection, has to do with climate, has to do with justice, has to do with Dharma, um, who we really are, that kind of a thing. And how do we, who do we need to be to actually create the world that we really want from a Dharma lens? So it's going to be something like that. And uh, I wanted to start out with a story, uh, a real story that, you know, I've told it twice before and I had never told this story to anyone, like for all the years of my life. But it's something that used to happen to me as a kid. So when I was a little girl, um, I grew up in uh, San Bernardino, California, and um, I, my bed in my bedroom was right next to a window, and night-blooming jasmine, the smell would come through, and it was just lovely. And I was a happy kid, you know? I really enjoyed being alive and all that good stuff. And um, at night, when I would go to bed, I would actually, just as I was, I, I don't know what the, you know, beta, beta, whatever those states are, but I would get to a place where I would actually lift from my bed and turn into particles. And I would be these particles above my bed. And it would happen all the time, not every night, but often. And these particles were just like, I loved it. I loved the feeling of it. And, and then I would find myself asleep, and obviously I'd be back in my body. And, um, but it was this feeling that, uh, of a freedom. And I really loved that that would happen. I would never tell anybody that that's what was happening to me. And so I, that lasted for years, not every night at all, but, you know, over time, until I was, you know, too old for that to be happening. Um, And so, um, then when I was 10, we moved from San Bernardino, which I lived in all black and Mexican neighborhood. Black folks on one side, Mexican people on the other side, and we all lived very nicely together. And we moved to an all-white neighborhood in in Rialto, which was like, you know, only a few miles away, but it felt like it was, you know, very far away because it was very different. It was all white. And this was in 1970, um, 
1967, right? And so we moved to this neighborhood, this all-white neighborhood, and what happened um, was what you would expect. And we were, my family was about maybe the third or fourth black family in the entire town. And so there were like two other kids in my school who were of color, and it was really hard. And it's the first time I really understood racism and what happened and the things that were said. And, you know, it was, it was, it was, terror, actually, and um, really hard on me and my family. And I'm telling you this because I realized later on that this turning into particles stopped. It stopped when once I moved into that neighborhood, and, and I don't know if it had to do with my age or what was happening to me, but it all stopped. And... Um, so, you know, I, you know, I got through all of that and, you know, did well and what have you, got to, you know, graduated and got to college. Um, and, but what happened as a result of living there is like, there was like this light dimmed that I had going for me all my life. It was like this light just dimmed. And I was still as bright as I could be. You know, I still did, you know, extraordinary well in school, things like that. Um, I finally, you know, um, made friends. And, but there was a light that dimmed. It was like lights dimmed out at me. And that became the beginning of me understanding what was happening in this country around race in America. And also my reaction and my mother and my family I come from, first of all, let me give you the background. I come from a very loving, amazing, incredible family. And um, my mother was just, I mean, I can't even tell you, you know, she was just our biggest champion and just told me how, you know, beautiful and black and smart and, and everything I am and that I could do anything and be anything. And so I always believed that. And um, so that was my home life as opposed to the school life, which was like, you know, telling me an, another message. So anyway, um, so then I got to college. I came to Cal Berkeley. And when I got to Berkeley, the, my first year, I discovered kundalini yoga. A brother that I met who um, became my partner for a while, he took me to, to yoga. And I, you know, up on Haste, they had this this house, the Sikhs, and with the, you know, the Sikhs, and their, they had swords, and I was thinking, whoa, this is peaceful? Um, <laughs> and we would do kundalini yoga every morning at 6 a.m. I was there, and the first time I went, I just discovered myself. It was like, after that intense, you know, kundalini yoga, and then laying out in savasana, I reconnected with the particles. And it was, it's almost like when that hum of a refrigerator, you know, when it's, it's, when it comes on, you don't hear it until, you know, it's silent enough and then you hear it. It was like that part of me reconnected. And it hadn't reconnected since all this stuff had happened to me. 
And so it was in Savasana, so I got addicted to it. I loved it, right? I went every morning at 6 a.m. Uh, we were there with the Sikhs and doing kundalini yoga, and just the feeling of being in my body and being connected. And after yoga, there was meditation. And this was um, in 1975 in, in, in Berkeley, or 74. And anyway, that is when it all came back to me. And I re it was like I inhabited my true self again through the practice of yoga and meditation. And so I, I tapped back into this vastness of who I really am. And it was, it was amazing. And that is the beginning of my coming to contemplative practice of um, yoga and, and meditation. And so after that, you know, I, you know, fast forward to 1982 and I was in New Zealand crazy situation with an all-black female band out of Brooklyn. I was living in New York at the time, and, and we were stranded in New Zealand, and craziness was happening, and somebody helped me, a woman who was a Buddhist, who I ran into at a pub, because I'm sitting at a pub, like, woe is me, and, <laughs> and she had on a t-shirt that said, um, it was, um, um, oh, what was that, that book? Um, it'll come to me. What was it? No, it was a it was a magazine. Um, anyway, I, I I noticed her and I started talking. She was Kiwi. She found out that I was you know stranded and I, I was managing this band and I was strand the band and I was stranded because we had a crook who was the promoter. All this stuff was happening. Anyway, she um, happened to be in the music business and believe it or not, and she knew who to take us to to actually book a tour. We were there for three months and while the band was performing, um, she said, "You come with me." And I went to um, this first Buddhist meditation. And that was in 1982 in Auckland, New Zealand. And that was my first experience with Buddhism. And I actually thought I was going on a retreat. Speaking of retreat practice, I thought it was like a laid-back retreat. Maybe I'd get a massage, you know. <laughs> I had no idea what I was in for. And um, Lama Zopa, what a beautiful being he is. And that was the beginning of my practice. And then, um, you know, in 1996, I got a phone call from Jack Cornfield. I was a yoga teacher by then, and he heard about me and called me out of the blue. I get this phone call from Jack, and I um, started working with him and working here at Spirit Rock. So I've been here since 1996 um, doing what I've been doing, teaching on mainly um, a lot as a yoga teacher and now as a Dharma teacher. And and a lot of other hats that I wear here, because I'm also on the board and other things. So the rest is herstory. And um, that, all right, you, you caught it. So that's kind of the beginning. Uh, but, but what I really want you to catch is that reconnecting of myself and how that happened, right? And how when I reconnected with, through this practice, I came back to myself, to the vastness, to who I really am. And this reminds me of a quote by um, the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who said, we are part of this universe. We are in this universe. But perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. And I really relate to that, because I feel like that is what I was tapping into. Um, as a kid, that the universe was in me. And 
I'm sure at some point, I'm not like I'm this special. I mean, I think that we all, if we really recognize at some point when we were a kid, we, we had that ability to tap into something that was real connected, that was deeper than, than this, this, this material life this, that we are so used to. And that tapping in felt, there was that sense of freedom and it felt fantastic, right? So when that happened, when I came to Cal Berkeley, what happened is that my heart began to open up again. That part of me, that the light that was dim started to come back on in a way, even though the world was still as crazy and all the isms and everything was here, but I had a different relationship to it because I had a different relationship to myself. And, um, and that, that has changed my life fundamentally. Going into that, 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 that um, Kundalini yoga class really changed my life. And I want to really emphasize connection because I honestly believe that it's disconnection that holds up this, this, this wopsided way that we're living on this planet. It's through disconnection. It's through disconnecting from ourselves, from each other, from all species, from the planet. That is how this is working. And it's intentional. So I'm gonna, you're gonna, I'm gonna bring it all in, okay? Y'all ready for me to bring it all in tonight? Because it is intentional. And, and I have to say, connecting with each other, sitting in circle, is a radical act of connection. So this is what we are doing, is a radical act, in fact. And it's wonderful, and it goes against the theme that is disconnecting us, okay? So now I'm going to take us way, 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 way back, back when I was really young, like 13.8 billion years ago. <laughs> and I'm going to go a little further back than what um, Anna took us back yesterday, last night, and that was nice. And I thought, oh, you're going to tell my Dharma talk, but she didn't. Um, so 13.8 billion years ago was the Big Bang. 13.8 billion years ago was the Big Bang, and hydrogen started to form stars and galaxies, all right? And then approximately 4.6 billion years ago, our solar system came into being. That's 4.6 billion years ago. And by the way, there are over 100 billion galaxies in our observable universe. 100 billion galaxies. Now, the galaxies are Milky Way is a galaxy. There's over 100 billion of those. And within our Milky Way, there are 30 billion planets. We are one of 30 billion. That's the hugeness. That's the hugeness, the vastness that we live in. The Earth was formed 4.54 billion years ago. Okay? And the earliest human, somebody, I know you probably have heard of Lucy, who was found in Ethiopia. Her real name is Dinkanish, which is Amharic, which is the language of the Ethiopian people. So Lucy was um, the Western name that they gave her. So let's call her her real name, which is Dinkanish. And what that means is you are marvelous. So she was found 3.2 million years, she was 3.2 million years old when they found her. 3.2 million years old. And other ancestors of ours have been found as well, um, more current ones, 300,000 years ago. 
Now here's the interesting fact, is that all of these human fossils that have been found have 97% of the same atoms and molecules as stars. 97% the same atoms and molecules as stars. So guess what? We're stardust. We are stardust. That's who we really are. I like to think how we would live on this planet if we really understood that. If we really lived into that vastness of who we really are. Brings up the song. You all, I don't know who's old. A lot of you are old enough to, to know the song. We are stardust. We are golden. Who, who wrote that? Who? Joni. Joni. Look at how we're going to attribute it to All right. Joni Mitchell. We are stardust. We are golden. We are a billion-year-old carbon. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. That was Joni. Love Joni Mitchell. And so that's who we really are. And this whole interconnected web of the stars and the universe and the galaxies and all humanity sitting here in this circle, come to this point in this circle. I, I, I love this particular quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who you probably have heard it a million times, and you might not have heard it at all, but I will say it. Um, he said this in June in 1963, this Birmingham letter in Birmingham jail. He said, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. Dr. King in 1963. There is absolutely no question that everything is deeply interrelated and we are responsible for each other. So I want to talk about that responsibility for each other that we have for and that is going to get into all these other areas that I want to talk about, how we are responsible for each other, for this planet, for the species, for all of this. But before I do that, I want to have a kind of backtrack a little bit about something that's important to understand that's in Buddhist philosophy, and it's called the two, um, the two uh, truths. The two truths. There are two planes of existence that... Um, that we believe and that the Buddha talked about, and I, I believe it myself, that there's these two planes of existence. And these two planes are the conventional, or the, what I like to call the relative plane, the plane right here, right here, this table, my hand, my body, the flower. All of this is the relative plane. Our lives are lived on this relative plane. And then the other plane is called the ultimate or the absolute plane. Right, And the absolute plane is that plane of stardust, of who we are also. All right, And what happens is that a lot of Buddhist traditions kind of, um, at least in Mayayana, they kind of privilege the absolute over the relative. 
Like that's who we really are. Um, in Theravada, it doesn't. Theravada Buddhism is a Buddhism that this mindfulness comes out of that we're here under. And it basically says that both of them are equally important, the relative and the absolute living together. So we have all of that in us, right? We have this stardust and we have this, 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 this black woman body. All of it is who I am and who you are, not black woman body. <laughs> Unless that's your truth. So this, this, another way of putting it, Thich Nhat Hanh called it, he talks about interbe. I know you've probably heard that, interbe, interbe, that we interbe with each other. Like you don't be alone, no one bees alone, nothing can be alone. We actually interbe. And so that's the same kind of um, thing. And so there's this paradox, because our minds don't do well with paradox. We want to have something either or. But the paradox is that both of them exist, the relative and the absolute. And the reason why I bring this up is because when we start talking about um, what Dr. King says, the interrelated structure of reality, it's really important that we really understand that there are these two planes. Because what I want to talk about is, and what I want to caution us on, is what is known as spiritual bypass. Spiritual bypass, some of you are nodding your head, maybe some of you never heard that. What I want to caution us with is to know that there is a tendency for um, what I call spiritual progressives, which I would just count all of us as, and myself included, there's this tendency to want to go to the universal. We're all the same. We're just all the same. And kind of hang out there as an answer to problems in the relative and challenges. Oh, we're just all the same. So understand that there is that universal, but there's the relative as well, and that we inhabit these relative bodies that have relative experiences that are real, that are just as real as, as, as the universal. So that's why I'm, I'm explaining these two planes, because it's, really it's really important to understand that, so that we don't do this spiritual bypass and we just you know, answer, oh, you're just broke and poor and live the way you do, because, and don't worry about it, we're all the same. And that's kind of a, not that anyone in this room would ever say anything like that, but that's the kind of thing that does happen. And so it's really important to understand these two planes existing and being very real. And so, um, so going back to who we are as human beings, it's really important for us to understand that, um, that we are actually a part of the evolutionary impulse of the entire cosmos that is transforming from who and what we are to who and what we are constantly becoming. So we are a process. Human beings are, we are a verb, actually. We really are. We think of ourselves as a noun, but we are a verb, constantly in, 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 in movement and change. And so um, one of the things that I want to talk about that we, how we have this going back to our responsibility is that we are, um, we have all this life. We're surrounded by all this life that I was talking about. And a lot of this life, how we differ as a species, is some very important things like speech, right? We're different than other beings, other animals. So that because we have speech, we stand upright, um, 
hands. I always thought it was thumbs, but I found out that actually other other especially uh, primates have thumbs very similar to ours, but our hands are very different. But what the most extraordinary difference is is our brains. That is what actually is the most the biggest difference that we have. And so what this human brain has allowed us to do is to think and to make choice and to choose as opposed to just instinct driving us. We make choices and we choose. And what we choose impacts our lives and the lives of all this life that's around us. All of this life around us is impacted by the choices we make by this this brain here. And I want to say that in a lot of, in certain Asian cultures, they say, I think from here. You know, I just pointed to here, but they say, I think, because the heart-mind is connected, as it really should be. The heart-mind is really connected. And so our brains and this, this ability to choose is really an important function that we have. And it's also at the root of the issues that we have. You know, the beauty that we have as well, you know, the beauty that we have has everything to do with, with, with the function of this brain. But as Anna mentioned last night, you know, and, and, and we're going towards the sunsetting of this retreat so I can start, you know, talking about some of the other things that are, we're facing. We're facing an economic an environmental and a social crisis of epic proportion. And we know that. And they're all human-made. And it's the choices that we're making. Because I believe if, as we make choices, we can also unmake them. Many of all of our systems and our institutions of our society are actually, that we've created, are actually collapsing around us. And the system, in my opinion, that is at the core, that's actually at the core of the crises, is our economic and financial system. That's at the core of it. Underneath it all, we actually don't really have necessarily a global warming or a climate crisis. We have a crisis of greed at any cost. That's what we have. Because if you follow the money, you'll see that that, it all boils down to that. We have a crisis of me versus we. This individual, this hyper-individualism that we're taught in this country. Our economic system, and I have a right to talk about it because I work in it, so... It is based on extraction, excessive greed, hatred and fear of others, and the delusion that if we just gather up enough money, we can protect ourselves and insulate ourselves from the disaster that we're creating, from the money. So what this has to do with Dharma is everything. It has everything to do with Dharma. 
the Buddha, the words that he left with us, some concepts of the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. We talk about greed, hatred, and delusion. And our entire system, capitalistic system, is based, and all of our institutions, based on greed, hatred, and delusion. It's built on these three poisons. So when I think of greed, it refers to our selfishness, this misplaced desire and attachment for more, the attachment and this grasping for happiness, this grasping, this unsatisfactoriness that's inside of ourselves that we think that we can buy ourselves into happiness somehow. And of course, there's a spectrum of, 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 of greed, but when I think about the extreme greed that is causing all the catastrophes on this planet. When Aaron, when you were talking the other morning, you talked about this pushing and pulling. I love the way you said that. And that's like the greed is the, is the pulling in, the pulling in of wanting that desirous mind, the mind that just can't get enough. Hatred refers to, you know, the anger, our aversion, our aversion to our repulsion towards anything that's unpleasant, whether it's people or circumstances, um, this unpleasantness, this uncomfortable feeling that we don't want and we push it away, or others that we don't know, that we other, that we push away. Right? And then delusion is just our misperception and the, our wrong views of reality. It's, Don, you spoke about right view, and I love when you were talking about that, because we actually think that, if, like I said, if we had just enough money, if we had just the right partner, if we had just the right car, if we had all the right things, then we would find happiness. That's absolutely delusional. So we base our happiness on these things that are impermanent. And Anna was talking about impermanence uh, last night and this morning. We base our happiness on those things that we hold them and they go away because the phenomenal world is impermanent. And so then we want more, and so we, 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 we make more money to buy more things that just disappear. So then we get more money to more things and more, and, and we're on this cycle, right? At any cost, at any cost. And it's not making us happy. I don't think it's really making us happy. We are putting under threat most everything that we hold precious and sacred. Most everything that we hold precious and sacred is under threat right now because of greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha called it 2,500 years ago. He called it. <laughs> and I believe that unless and until we begin to seriously take into account our rich interior world of love and care and compassion and ethical behavior and our sacred an ex exterior world of rivers and streams and people of all kinds of hues and traditions and penguins and monarch butterflies. Until we take those into account, as much as we take into account our corporate, corporate quarterly returns, how much money we have in the bank, and the hoarding of money, we're actually going to end up where we're headed. That really is frightening.
We've exchanged our values for what we think of as what is of value. Right? Certain things are valuable. Not what is sacred, though. Not that stream that's sacred. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day, and she was saying that she, um, that she was talking to someone else who was talking about greed should be treated as a mental illness. And I thought, huh. Because it is going against our natural grain of who we really are. Because we really do care. Our natural instinct, contrary to popular belief and to social Darwinism, our natural instinct is to collaborate and to care. Greater Good Science Center, UC Berkeley, does all this research. And I, I, I really encourage you to go on their website and see all the work that they're doing around happiness, around care, around, collabor- around who we really are. But we think that we're here to compete and to tear each other down. And in the meantime, we're just destroying everything that's sacred. There's this, um, I, I go to the Amazon. Um, I used to go every year. I haven't been in two years now. I'm going back um, this next year. And I take people to the Amazon in, um, in Ecuador. But the, um, the, the Quechua people are there, but mainly in Peru. And there's this tale that is absolutely, it's, it's this true story that John Perkins, I don't know if you know who he has told me. And so the way their society is divided up is that the women actually um, build the houses and make the hearth and the, take care of the kids. And the men go out and they like chop the wood for the houses. They, they kill the animals for the food. And they're out there and the women, you know, take all the resources that the men do and bring it home and make home for the people. And they then tell the men when to stop. When we have enough now, you can stop. The men stop and they chill out. And, you know, and that's kind of how the society is, why the women probably working hard. Um, anyway, that's my own little editorial note. But that's the way the society is divided. So the women tell the men when to stop. And they said, and turned to us and said, why are the women not telling the men to stop? Why are we not telling the men to stop? So, I have so much to say. I want to talk about another concept that I love in our tradition here, and it's called sila. Sila is, um, is the morality aspect of this tradition. I like to call it integrity. It's, um, it means goodness or ethical behavior or honesty, integrity, our moral compass, the moral compass, our moral center is sila. And I have to say, I don't know where that lies in this country today. The Buddha said that we should practice sila first before we meditate. 
practice of sila, because think about it, you know, when you're agitated or upset about something or in that space where you're not in integrity, can you really sit down and meditate? No. Yeah. It takes really being true to oneself. It's like when I taught yoga, I can't go out and eat a big veggie burger and a bunch of fries and then come out and come in and teach. I had to like really be more in tune. I say veggie burger because I'm a vegetarian. Um, I had to be really more in tuned with my body in order to teach yoga, to teach movement. The same with sitting. And so sila is, it, it creates the fertile ground and the soil for our sitting practice. And it also is the fertile ground for our lives and how we live. My dear friend and comrade Larry Yang, um, and teacher and almost twin, we were born a few hours apart in the same year, a few miles apart even. He says in his book, he has this beautiful book called Awakening Together, and he says in his book, Without integrity or sila, mindfulness is morally meaningless. Mindfulness is morally meaningless. There's a lot of controversy going on right now, too, about um, mindfulness, like in the corporate setting, right? Like, are we bringing, it's great, mindfulness is coming into corporate America, it's coming into, you know, Silicon Valley. And what's the intention behind it? Is it so that the staff and the people who work there can just be better robots at doing what they're doing and get more mindful about what they're doing and get more out of them? Is that, there's a lot of controversy about it or, you know, and it's good for them. I mean, I'm, I don't have a stand. I'm just, I'm just saying that that's something that people are talking about right now. But Sila is that integrity. It's, it's, it's underneath, it's underpinning our entire dharma practice is sila. Mindfulness is morally meaningless without it. We live in a world to get as much as you can for as little as you can. We need a more moral compass. Larry says some things in this book that, I don't know, I guess I don't have a lot of time to read, but page 216, he talks about what integrity is. And the way he defines integrity, I love. He says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. We want to live a life with these values because doing otherwise... It just brings an endless cycle of suffering, which is what the Buddha pointed to, which is why there is so much suffering right now. We took the precepts our first night. Remember the precepts? I, I, I love those precepts. I, I'll post them. Somebody asked me for them. I'll post them up there. But the ones that Manzanita Village did, and I'm going to just read the highlights of them again. These are the precepts that we took when we started this retreat, which feels like years ago but it was only a few nights ago. It's non-harming. That's what Sila is all about, non-harming. Aware of the violence in the world, 
and the power of nonviolent resistance. I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate the compassion that seeks to protect each living being. Aware of the poverty and greed aware of the poverty and greed in the world and of the intrinsic abundance of the earth. Aware of the absolute lovelessness in the world and of the healing that is made possible when we open to love. Aware of the falsehood and deception in the world and of the power of living and speaking the truth. Aware of the contamination and desecration of the world and of my responsibility for life as it manifests through me. These are the five precepts that we took. What is your responsibility to life as it manifests through you. Remember, the universe is in us. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, we live in a moral universe, despite all the appearances to the contrary. There's no way that evil will ultimately triumph. Right and wrong do matter. Our human capacity to make choices comes with it a responsibility for us to nurture and protect all life. When we fall short, and we will, and we do all the time, we're not perfect beings, but when we do, we need to embrace a pathway for repair and reparations. Care and reparations, beginning with ourselves. You know, I've been sitting in room two, one, whatever it is, room two, listening to so many heartbreaking stories and just my heart, just so much compassion for all of us. We've been through so much. How do we repair our own hearts? We can't get to this outer world until we actually do the work internally. We have to do this. All that has happened over our lifetimes. And this practice is asking us to be kind, to have integrity, and to be compassionate. How do we do that when we've been hurt so much and our hearts have closed? Hurt people hurt people. This practice is asking us to keep our hearts open. How can we trust 
that it's safe out there to do that. And especially if, if you're in the body of a, of, of a brown person, a black person, a, a, the body of an Asian American person, the body of an indigenous person, the body of a woman, and don't have a combination of the two or three, how do we find safety? How do we develop the capacity to put integrity, wisdom, and compassion front and center of every decision that we make when we've been so harmed in our life? We have to do it. We have to start here. This is what I know. I know that we can't live our lives from a place of wisdom and compassion and integrity with a reactive and afflicted mind and a closed heart. It just can't happen. So we have to figure it out. And I believe as women, we have a jump start on figuring this out. Y'all with me? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. That's right. As women, we have this jump start. And we must begin by giving ourselves permission to heal our own hearts. You know, um, and healing our hearts is not easy. And I'm going to tell you a personal story. And some of you all, I'm going to be as discreet as I can, but many of you are going to figure it out right away who know me and who know. But I am... My heart was broken, my heart was closing, I was shutting down, and it was based on my being what I thought um, betrayed, betrayed by a group of people that I was working with. And the betrayal just shut me down. And I went to, I'm going to, this is my Kuan Yin story. I was um, at IMS. Everybody's been talking about Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. This time last year, I left around this time last year to just sit for half of the three-month retreat. I couldn't do the whole three months, just six weeks. And I was there, and I had just left my situation, and I was, I had... When I was there, I had like two days of like pure hell. I mean, I was in the dark night of the soul, like really feeling anger. I was so angry at this betrayal. I was so angry at these people. I was so angry at how things had played out. And I had lost my compass. And I just went, you know, when you're sitting, you know, y'all know what's happening, right? I was where you are. And just all this stuff was coming up. And I spent... I was getting, it was so much, it was so intense. And I went to go talk to a teacher, and she said to me, what's underneath all that anger? And I realized what was underneath that anger was shame. I was holding a lot of shame for not making it work. I was leading the charge, and I couldn't make it work. 
and I had a lot of shame. And that's what was underneath it. And when I got to the fact that I was the problem, my own problem, my own shame, in the walking, one of the walking halls is this Kuan Yin that's huge. And every day I would passing Kuan Yin. And then I realized, Kuan Yin, <laughs> you've been here all this time. And I went about giving myself compassion, compassion practice. And I turned my next days, and this was around Thanksgiving too, it was Thanksgiving, and I was, every day was just deep compassion and prostrations in front of Kuan Yin and allowing my heart to open back up and to feed myself compassion. I was mad at them. I needed them to say they were sorry. They weren't going to do that. It was me who needed to do the internal work of my own heart. And can I tell you, I composted that stuff. Composted it. Gone. Done. Complete. Pure. And left me with compassion for them. Left me with compassion, knowing that they did the best they could too, just as I did. So I know that so much we think about all the horrible things that have happened to us, the betrayal, the hurt, the pain. And we want somebody out there to do something about it. It's right here. This is where we start, our self-compassion. And sometimes it doesn't seem like, what does self-compassion have to do with it? I had no idea that's what I needed, but that's what it was. It allowed me the freedom that I needed. And I know that we need to begin to free ourselves from the harm that we define our lives by. Yes, it was wrong. Yes, they should say, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. And they may not. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Allow it to eat you up. How to learn. How to open this heart. Self-love, self-compassion. And as women... Once we do that, and I'm going to call something else out, as women, we have in this circle our own issues between us as white women and women of color. And once we do our own work ourselves and get the tools, let's come together. Let's come together. Because together we are a force. We are a force. And we have what it takes. I know we do. I know we do. I believe in this circle. You know, I was fortunate to have a mother who was 
amazing. <laughs> she, um, I had really good fortune. She inspired me to, like I said, you know, you could do and be anything you want to be kind of. A lot of wisdom, a lot of compassion. All my friends wanted her as their mother. <laughs> my house was a house to be at, you know, fun, games, music, dancing. <laughs> the ultimate feminist always told me, don't ever let a man, da 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 you know, all that stuff. <laughs> she was amazing, tiny little thing. But we were instructed our whole lives to stand up for the voiceless. She said, don't ever let injustice happen and you walk by it. That's what we did, and that's what I did. And I want to, I want to give you the song that was um, her. It was her um, theme song. And it instructed me, and she played it all the time, and instructed me. <laughs> Some of you may know it. It's called "God Bless the Child." Any of you know that song? Written by Billie Holiday. Them that's got shall get, them that's not shall lose. For the Bible says, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child. That's got her own. That's got her own. That was my theme song. And that song, that song told me to walk high and with integrity and to do what you're here to do. And now we are all a part of this great sangha of inspired women. And why did you come here? Why are you here? Why did you take this week? Each of us with our own lives filled with joys and sorrows. And I believe you're here because you know that somewhere that stardust is who you are. And you have the capacity to live with an open heart. You have the capacity to do that, to find freedom, to find that liberation. The answer is yes, you do. We all do. And we need each other. No one does it along. Sangha, they say Sangha is the next Buddha. The Sangha, Thich Nhat Hanh, Sangha is the next Buddha. It's not going to be one Buddha, it's going to be the Sangha coming together. I believe that. And I'm going to leave you with um, 
little phrase by a French philosopher, and then one poem by Albert Camus. He says, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I have one poem. Oh, did I bring it? That I want to read to you. Do you all know Joy Harjo? Yes, no? Yes. She's a member of the Muskegee Creek Nation. She is the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate of the United States right now. Indigenous woman who's amazing, badass. It's called Remember. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn. That is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth. We are all earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life, who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember, you are all people, and all people are you. Remember, you are this universe, and this universe is you. Remember, all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember, language comes from this. Remember the dance language is, that life is. Remember. May all beings be free from suffering and from the causes of suffering. May we all awaken together Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.